Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you and happy 4th of July to you. I am uh, delighted to be preaching to you this morning. Pastor Brad is still on his sabbatical, and so I am uh, filling in uh, today. It's a joy and a privilege uh, to, to be here with you. So let me begin by saying what I say before I preach every, every time. The Bible uh, is the very word of God uh, that has been given to us. Uh, this is the book of truth. So uh, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. Uh, the book of Jude is right at the end of your Bibles before the book of Revelation, but after the book of uh, Second uh, and Third John. So if you can open your Bibles there, I would appreciate that so you can follow along with me. Um, if you do, as you do that, uh, let me go ahead and, and, and pray for us. God, we, we come to you to, to beg you. God, we beg for your spirit to, to be among us. Uh, there, there is no word I can say. There, there is no explanation I, I can say uh, that, that will help your people uh, this morning apart from your, from your spirit. Uh, so God, I pray now that you would uh, be among us. Let your, let your word speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read here from Jude verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to begin by, by asking you all a question. And I'm sure everybody in the room probably will have a, a different answer than I probably would give. Uh, and the question is this. Uh, what do you think is the biggest crisis in our modern day? Now, I realize that question can be answered differently in different contexts. If you're in a different country, if you're in America, it, it speaks differently. But I'm asking specifically for our congregation and, and for an audience in the United States of America right now, what do you think is the biggest crisis in our modern day? In other words, what is the issue? What is the issue that threatens the society and the church the most in our day? I'm sure some would say that is the pandemic, which is still killing people right now. And I'm, I'm sure some would say that's just, uh, that's, that's, that's made up, that's not even happening. And I'm sure some would say that is the political party of our day. 
regardless of what political party may be in power. However, I'd like to submit this morning that, that I think the biggest threat to society in our day is the attack on objective truth. The attack on objective truth. For example, there the, the used to be a day when we could look at a person and agree that, yes, that's a woman or that's a man. There used to be a day when society agreed that marriage is between a man and a woman as ascribed in the Bible. But now we, we live in a world, we live in a society that affirms subjective truth. In other words, what is true for one person is not always considered to be true for another person. The gender of a person is no longer identified as it has been always identified for thousands of years. For thousands of years, if you had certain biological characteristics and if you had a certain genetic makeup, you were either correctly identified as a female or as a male. In our society, however, that's not considered to be true anymore. So why is that? Why has our society changed so much? Well, I would say that the problem of our day is the attack on objective truth. And ladies and gentlemen, a society that cannot maintain objective truth ultimately cannot sustain itself. It's really a serious matter uh, when the church of Jesus Christ rejects biblical truth. And the reason why this is so serious is that God, God, God himself is, is a God of truth. And God defends the truth, as we will see in the book of Jude here. In fact, I don't think that it is by accident that the book of Jude is where it is in the Bible. The book of Jude, like I said before, it's right before the book of Revelation. And then the book of Jude is right after the books of 2nd John and 3rd John. So if you can turn with me uh, to 2nd to John, which is to the left, probably like a page or two. 2nd uh, John. So, so I, want, I want you, before we look at the book of Jude... Uh, to see really the importance of maintaining uh, biblical truth in the church. So here we go. I'm going to read a little bit here from uh, the book of First uh, John. And, and I want you to pay attention. Every time the word truth is mentioned, just start pay attention to that. So Second John verse, chapter 1, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in, in what? The truth, as we commanded as we were commanded by the Father. So you see there in the text, five times 
the word truth is repeated in those verses. And as God's children, it is important then that we are walking in truth. And uh, I'm not going to read uh, the book of 3 John, but if you were to read the book of 3 John, when you get an opportunity, you'll also see that the, the word truth is also repeated there. So why, so, so, so why what, what is truth? Let, let's start off with the definition of what truth is. Uh, according to uh, Merriam-Webster, truth means conformity to fact or actuality. Conformity to fact or actuality. Truth means faithfulness, faithfulness to an original or a standard. And that standard for us as Christians is what? Is the word of God, right? So this is our standard right here, the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we, we see that truth is a fundamental moral and personal quality of God, like God himself. In the Christian Standard Bible, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it reads, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and what? Truth. God is referred to as the God of truth in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. The psalmist in Psalm 119, he declares in 142, verse 142, that your law is truth. In verse 152 in, in Psalm 119, he says, all your commandments are truth. In verse 160, he says, the sum of your word is truth. So let's realize that because of his perfect nature and because of his perfect will, God, God himself has to speak and he has to act in truth. And he does that in the Bible. God, God cannot and does not ever, ever lie. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. So, so truth is really, if you think about it, at the center of our faith as Christians. And it is grounded in the being of God himself. And it, it, it embodies these ideas of, of faithfulness. It embodies these ideas of reliability, uh, these ideas of reality, and these ideas of completeness. Again, God himself is the essence. He is the essence of truth. And this quality of truth should be also reflected in us if we really claim to be Christians. But again, like I said, we're now living in a society that rejects the truth. And we're living in a society, in some instances, that promotes and celebrates, in some instances, falsehood. The opposite of something being true is that it is, it is false. So we see in the scriptures that whenever, whenever there are false teachers that arise in the church. The Bible forcefully speaks against such individuals. And we will see that in the book of Jude. So to summarize, to summarize everything that I just said in, in, in one statement, I'm, it's going to be up on the screen here. We can say that sinful humanity has a tendency to reject the truth and to create a philosophy or a theology that best accommodates for their sin. Let me read that again. So sinful humanity has a tendency to reject what is, what is true, and we have a tendency to create a philosophy and our own theology that actually accommodates for our sin. 
So isn't this what happened in the garden? If you think about it in Genesis chapter 3, the devil, the serpent, rejected the truth. And he, he, he actually created his own theology. And he convinced Eve of the same false theology to accommodate for, he, for, for, for their sin. So let me, read, let me read for you from Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So do you see that? Like the serpent is questioning and rejecting the truth. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden but God said, but God said, so, so there's the truth, right? Whatever God says is the truth. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. I mean, do, you, do you see the false theology there? I mean, do you see the false teaching do you see in that statement the rejection of truth? Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband who was with her. So from the beginning, the serpent was a false teacher. And we know what happened when Adam and, C and, when Adam and Eve listened to the words of this false teacher. Sin entered the world and people were separated from God. The fellowship that once was there between humanity and between, and between humanity and God was, was broken and it was marred. So in the book of Jude, particularly, we, we have this situation. Uh, there are these ungodly, apostate, false teachers that have infiltrated the church. And Jude shows us in this book that it, this is a serious matter. This is a serious matter that must be dealt with. The truth of the gospel was under attack. The threat to the church was real. And Jude finds it necessary to write, to appeal to the, to the church, to contend for the faith. The truth of the gospel was being perverted by these ungodly people who had crept into the church. And as we read in Genesis chapter 3, we know that when there is unbelief and when there is doubt and when there, and when we practically abandon the word of God, it leads to sin. It leads to sin, and it is absolutely devastating as we see there. Listen to what Martin Luther says in, in his lectures on Genesis. He says, the source of all sin truly is unbelief, doubt, and abandonment of the word. Because the world is full of these, it remains in idolatry denies the truth of God and invents a new God. 
Martin Luther died in 1546. But these words, they still ring so loudly. They ring so loudly and so true in our day. So some commentators have said that the book of Jude is one of the most neglected books in the Bible. Uh, it is neglected by scholars. Uh, it is neglected in the pulpit. It is neglected devotionally. Uh, in fact, Christian bookstores, if you really look, uh, it, it's interesting when I was getting ready for this, I've got a, a Logos digital library with about 2,800 books. And out of all those books, I could find 25 commentaries on the book of Jude. So, so, so why is that? Why is that? Why, after all, it is such a short book with only 25 verses. Well, as I've been studying the book in the past few weeks, I think I realized partially the reason why, why this book is so unpopular. Two things, really. I think it's because of the, of, of the contents of, of the book, what's in the book there. And also, secondly, the structure of the book. So what can we say about the, the content and the structure? I, I think the book of Jude is neglected in our day uh, because, quite honestly, there are some themes in there that, if we can be honest, make people in our day uncomfortable. It is, message, it is this message about false teachers. It talks about ungodliness. It talks about immorality. It talks about condemnation and judgment on the ungodly. And this message of judgment and condemnation, if we can be honest, strikes many people today as being intolerant, unloving, and contrary to the message of love as they understand it. And then the Bible, and the book of Jude also is a bit unusual because it quotes from two extra biblical sources. Uh, by this, I mean that the book of Jude draws. And there's some materials that are not in the biblical canon. Like if you read some of the New Testament books, most of them, they'll quote from the Old Testament books that we have. But the book of Jude quotes from two works. One work is called The Assumption of Moses, and the other work is called First Enoch. And they're not in the canon. But, but, but the use of these extra biblical references, however, does not mean that those, those literal works those books that are quoted are, are the authoritative word of God in the same category as we, as we would put scripture, for example. So, so God has given us this word. And, and the book of Jude is in here, right? So let's, let's uh, realize that the book of Jude is the inspired, the inerrant, and authoritative word of God. And it is relevant to our day. And the use of these extra biblical sources is just used uh, as an example of uh, especially when we talk about Second Enoch, it gives that as an example on, on the judgment that will come on those who are ungodly. All right, so here's my approach uh, pretty quickly. So we're going to imagine that the book of Jude is like a big, big canvas with, with uh, several pictures that have been masterfully painted on it. And for us to kind of stare at the book of Jude for, for just a few minutes. And uh, as we do that, I want you to, to pay attention to four pictures. Four pictures on the book of Jude. Number one, I want us to see a picture of the author. I want us to see a picture of the author. 
And number two, I want us to see a picture of the recipients. And then number three, I want us to see a picture of the warning and the appeal. And then number four, I want us to see a picture of the ungodly false teachers. All right, number one, let's see the picture of the author. Jude verse one says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude is obviously the one who's writing to these believers who are under the threat of these false teachers who have been infiltrating the church. And if we're strictly speaking, his name actually is not Jude. His name is actually Judas. But most of our modern translations, they refer to him as Jude. Uh, when we read in the Gospels, for example, he's referred to there as Judas. For example, when we read in, uh, in the account of Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, this is when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. We hear there about Jude, uh, and he's referred to as, as Judas. I'm going to read there. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, He, uh, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and who? Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So most Bibles refer to him as Judas. Uh, I'm sorry, most Bibles in our day refer to him as Jude instead of Judas, probably because they don't want him to be confused by, uh, with the notorious Judas Iscariot, the traitor who betrayed Jesus. But, but, but particularly this Judas here, the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, was not a traitor. But he was a true child of God. He was, he was earnest. He was sincere. And he had found salvation in Jesus Christ. Notice there in verse 3, he mentions that he had been eager to write to his recipients about our common salvation. So Jude had found salvation in Christ. And it's interesting to note. I think it's, it's just very interesting that, that he grew up with Jesus. In the same home. And I find it interesting that just like with the other members of his family, the fact that Jude had lived with Jesus did not automatically bring salvation to him. In other words, we, we can summarize and we can say that there is no salvation by association. Just because Jude was associated with Jesus as his half-brother, he had not automatically believed in Jesus while he was alive. But salvation had come, salvation had come to him later on after the resurrection. That's, that's what happened. This is such a remarkable thought. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable, isn't it? That somebody would grow up with Jesus, have conversations with Jesus, have breakfast with Jesus, Lunch with Jesus. Maybe bully Jesus. And at the end of it, you know, they, he, they do not really believe in him. There is no salvation by association. We don't automatically become Christians just because our parents 
or our siblings are Christians. The Bible tells us that it was only after the resurrection that those members of his physical family, like Jude, actually finally believed in him. Let me read for you from John chapter 7. It makes a little more sense there. After this, Jesus went up in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. His, so his brothers say to him, Live here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then see verse 5 there. What does it say? For not even his brothers believed in him. So that's interesting. That no one of Jesus' brothers is mentioned really as, as a disciple during his ministry. And uh, even before the crucifixion. But after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension, we see them there in the upper room. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So let me ask, do you have family members or friends who do not believe in Jesus? I mean, I mean, think about it. it. It took probably 20 to 30 years, because they were younger than him, probably of faithful, prayerful witness by the Son of God himself. But the miracle happened after his death that his, his brothers finally believed in him. The sovereign grace of God finally brought Jude to salvation. The brother of Jesus, the brother of Jesus himself, needed salvation. And this is a reminder to us that no one, no one, no one is too privileged to really need to be saved. Again, there is no salvation by association. The same sovereign grace that saved Jude, the brother of Jesus, is also available to save our friends and our relatives. And if you are here today, within the sound of my voice, and you do not know Jesus today, please know that the same salvation that Jude found can be found as well. All you need to do according to the Bible is to believe in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ lived a life that was perfect, a life that you and I could not live. And yet on the cross, he died. He died in our place. Even though he did not have any sin to die for, he died on the cross and he bore the wrath of God that every hum human being deserved. And, it, and then he, he not only died, but he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, I invite you to believe in him. Jude had believed that. He had believed that and he became saved. So the way that Jude describes himself, I think is quite interesting. And quite frankly, I think is very humble and quite remarkable. Uh, it's worth noting that he does not introduce himself in terms of his familial connection to Jesus. 
And I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, if it was me, probably, I would have printed a T-shirt and write on there, seriously, Jesus is my half-brother. And then put it on, on the back as well. And then take a picture of myself and post it on Facebook and Instagram and whatever. And then uh, do, it, do it over again. But, but, but Jude does not do that. He does not do that. He simply identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Actually, in the original language, in fact, if you look in your Bibles, there's like a little note in there with a little superscript. And if you look there, the word for, for, slave, for, for uh, servant here actually is, is doulos. And that word actually means slave. It does not, it does not uh, translate that way in the ESV. But, but, but Jude, again, he was a servant. He was a slave of God. He was a slave of Jesus. Now, for, for a Jewish reader, this concept of being a slave or being a born servant did not connote drudgery like we would think. I mean, when we think about slavery in our context, we often think about the Atlantic slave trade. But if you, if you were a Jewish reader... It actually meant the honor and the privilege to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's how Jude viewed himself as one who was a doulos, who was a slave, who was closely bound to Jesus by the thread of love. So it's really, if you think about it, being a slave means that there is obedience and there is surrender. So after he, he, he was saved, Jude submitted himself and he was proud to put that badge on. So that's the picture of the author, which makes us ask the question then, who is he writing to? And we look on the canvas now and we see the picture of the recipients. See the picture of the recipients. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude identifies the recipients of this letter by these three descriptions, that they are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. And then he prays that they may experience the mercy and the peace and love of God. So to summarize, we can say that he's writing to the godly saints, the members of the church, and they are described in this way. Number one, that they are called. The emphasis here is the sovereign, gracious, initiative calling of God in salvation. They were called from the darkness into the marvelous light of God. They were called from death to life. They were called, they were called from the being among the ungodly to being among those who are godly. They were called. And uh, when you talk about being called, it has reference to them being elected or predestined by God before the foundation of the world they were called. And like all Christians, all Christians are called, and, and that's uh, the, 
the description that Jude uses. And number two, they were beloved or loved. In other words, we can say that they were the recipients of the divine affection. They had received the divine eternal affection of God before the, the earth was made, before the sun and the moon and the stars began to shine. God set his love. God set his affection on them. He, he repeats the same word, beloved, in verse 3 and in verse 17 and in verse 21. And so, Christian, in the busyness of life, when life is so busy, remember that we are wrapped in the, in the love of God. In life and death, in valleys and mountains, in joy and pain, in pleasure and pain, in sadness and sorrow, in strength and weakness, Christians are beloved in God the Father. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. They were called, they were beloved, and they were kept. Christians are kept for Jesus, and Christians are kept by Jesus. See the language in verse 1, to those who are called in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then we see the same language if you go to the end of the book there in verse 24 in the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So God keeps us. He keeps us in the valleys and in the mountains of life. God keeps us in our disappointments. God keeps us in our tears. God keeps us when we do not understand. And really this highlights the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Remember Jesus uses the same language in John chapter 17 verse 10. He, he prays this. Jesus prays this. He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then see the language here. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, there's the language again, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And then in verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, so, God, use, so, so God keeps us. And Jesus here uses this language to remind us, as he prays that we are kept by God and we are kept for God. So, so why is that important? Well, this is so important because it reminds us that whatever, whatever it is that comes our way, whatever it is, whether it is false teaching, whether it is persecution, whether it is pr the pressures of this world, or a devastating medical diagnosis, or an accident, or even death itself, we are kept by God and we are kept for God. 
God keeps us here on earth and God will keep us and he will pre- preserve us to eternity. So Jude finds it necessary to sandwich the message of this. His message in Jude is sandwiched by the reality that God keeps us. He begins his message in Jude by that reality and then he ends by that. The recipients were called, they were beloved, they were kept, and then we see another set of triplets. In verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So what is interesting to me about these things is that he prays that they are multiplied, not added. In other words, in a church setting like this one, or any church setting for that matter, we have to be a people that have an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. And oh, how I pray, how I pray, I pray for this church that we would have an abundance of mercy, peace, and love. Because the soil of mercy and peace and love allows us as Christians to grow and to thrive as God's people. So we're looking at the canvas and we've seen a picture of the author. We have seen a picture of the recipients. And now I want us to see a picture there of the warning and the appeal. The warning and the appeal. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that it was Jude's original. His original intent was to write about their common salvation. But we see that from the, cho- from the change here in the tone of the letter that his intention had changed. We see like an urgency there. They, 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 there's an urgent need for them to be addressed so that they can contend for the faith. The NIV says, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you. The King James Version says, it was needful, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. So it's, it's obvious that Jude has a serious, serious concern for this church that he's writing to and for the individuals that he's writing to. So Jude is not merely, he's not merely giving them a suggestion He is not merely giving a superficial consideration, but he's making a firm, a serious, a hearty, and a robust appeal for them to stand for the gospel and to fight for the truth. And I want you to see there also the definite article. He says, contend for the faith. The faith. Not just faith. He is not just referring to faith as the personal exercise of trust in God by a believer. But he is referring to something entirely different here. In other words, the faith refers to the whole body. If you think about it, the whole body of, re- of revealed salvation truth that is contained in the scriptures. We can say that the faith is the known, the known revealed Will of God from cover to cover in this book right here. That is, that, is, that is the faith. And Jude really is concerned 
that they would have sound doctrine and that they would be able to discern and to sort out the difference between truth and error. The faith. The faith refers to the doctrinal content of the message as it has been taught by the prophets, by the apostles, and, and, and as is found common by the church. So, what's interesting about the faith is that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And what is interesting about the faith is that we keep on living by grace. And as we will see here, this is some of the thing that was being threatened here. We are saved by grace and we acknowledge Jesus Christ is our master and is our Lord. That's the message of the faith. And we are to contend for the faith. So are we, are we excited about the faith? Do we live for the faith? Do we explain the faith to others? So we have seen a picture of the author and a picture of the recipients and a picture of the warning and the appeal. Now I want us to see in our canvas a picture of the ungodly false teachers. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know that we've got a lot of military families in this church. So when you move to another location or another place, or if you go to, to any church for that matter, how can you know? How can you know who the false teachers are? False teachers can creep into the church. Sometimes we allow false teachers to creep into the church through the YouTube channels that we watch. Sometimes we allow false teachers to creep into the church unnoticed as peoples of influence and power. Sometimes we allow false teachers to creep into the church, even as professors in seminaries. Sometimes they creep into the church as writers of best-selling books in the Christian bookstores. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, Jude says. So how are you, how are you and I, how are we to know when someone has crept in and they are a false teacher? Three ways, we know someone is a false teacher by the content of what they teach. By the content of what they teach or what they say. And then number two, we know someone is a false teacher by their lifestyle. And then number three, we know someone is a false teacher, not just by the content of what they teach in their lifestyle, but we know it by the effect they have on the church. So what can we say about the content of what they teach? Verse, in verse four, Jude says that they pervert the grace of God that's serious. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these people deny. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, they teach that you can become a Christian and live however you want to. They say you can believe in Jesus, but you don't have to submit your life to him as your master and as your Lord And ladies and gentlemen, that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. John, in 1 John chapter 4, writes, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So we can tell who the false teachers are by the content of their teaching, and then we can tell the false teachers by the false by their lifestyle, by their lifestyle. Jude says that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, they, they twist and distort the grace of God as a license for sensuality and as a license to sin. And Jude says, he says more about this. If you go there with me, if you can, uh, to verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner, these people relying on their dreams, they rely on their dreams. Have you ever heard preachers say, God gave me a dream? They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then drop down to verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You see that word blaspheme? They are blasphemers. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They are unreasoning. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And then he gives us some analogies there of what they are like. He says in verse 12, They are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. And listen to this explanation. They are like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. They are like fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up form of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In other words, they are hypocrites who are waiting the eternal judgment of God. Verse 16, they are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Oh, that is strong language, isn't it? That is strong imagery. Those are strong metaphors to describe the ungodly false teachers and the judgment that will come upon them. So we know false teachers by the content of their teaching and by their lifestyles and then by their effects. These false teachers... They cause division in the church. They cause instability in the church. They cause confusion in the church. Paul speaks about them in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with sound doctrine, with sound words of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. See, see the effects there, controversy for quarrels. They cause quarreling about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion, and constant friction, constant friction in the church. Who among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth 
imagining that godliness is a means of gain, so they seek to use pulpits to make money. So in verse 4, there Paul says to Timothy these things, that these ungodly, these ungodly people in the church, watch out for them, for they are causing these controversies, and they are like, like sandpaper that cause constant friction. So how are we to respond to them? How are we to respond to false teachers? We can say, as a, as a, as a person medically minded, what is the antidote to this false teaching? In other words, how do we contend for the faith? Well, well, we can assume that as Christians, we are to stay in the word. Our noses are to be in the Bible. And as Christians, obviously, we can assume that we are to be people that are praying. But then also, number one, we are to hold fast to the true gospel. Hold fast to the true gospel. In other words, we are to fight to preserve the truth. We are not to believe everything that our culture tells us to believe. Just because there is a commercial on the television with something does not make it right. Believe what the Bible says. Believe it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And listen to this. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. And then Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. But even if we, listen to the seriousness here. Even if we or an angel from heaven was to appear on the stage right this minute and preach a gospel that is contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's the seriousness of it. So let's hold fast to the gospel. And then number two, let's watch out. Watch out for the false teachers and avoid them. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus by their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Watch out and avoid them, he says. How do we contend? Number three, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We see that in verse 21. Keep yourself, keep yourself in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself, the word says. How else are we to contend? Number four, we are to wait expectantly for our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the same thing then in verse 21. And then number five, we are to be concerned about the salvation of other people. And we are to show mercy to each other. If you look in Jude there in verse 22 to 25, he says, And have mercy, have mercy on those who doubt. And listen to the strong language here. Save others by snatching them, snatching them out of the fire. Is that how we see people that are not saved? As people that are in the fire that need to be snatched out? So God, 
has given us his word here. And Jude says, hold fast to the gospel. He says, watch out for false teachers and avoid them. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. He says, wait expectantly for our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, be concerned about the salvation of other people. And then finally, and I think the most, the most important one, he's, we are to contend for the faith by, by beholding. Behold the greatness of our God. And we see that in the, in the doxology. We are to behold the, the glory and the majesty and the authority of God. Isn't God worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is worthy. Dear friends, we are to behold in the glory and the majesty and the authority of God this morning and every day in the week. Jude finishes uh, with his doxology. Verse 24 to 25, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Isn't that nice? Isn't that wonderful? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we acknowledge and we agree with Jude here that you are worthy to be praised. Oh glory and majesty and dominion and authority and power belongs to you. God, I know I have said a lot, but I know your word is sufficient and your word is living and active. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit again would apply these words to our hearts. Enable us, O oh God, to live according to the truth of your word. Help us, help us, O oh God, to contend for the faith. Help us, O oh God, to love you. May Christianity not just be a religion to us, but may we love you, O oh God, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength. And for those of us, God, who are not trusting in you this morning, God, I pray that, that you would give them the clarity of mind and draw them to yourself, O oh God. Call them. Show them that they are loved. And that if they are saved, they too can be kept to eternity. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.